Uh, four books off my shelf. Uh, where is God when it hurts? Why do bad things happen to good people? The problem of pain. If I were God, I'd end all the pain. Just four of a truckload of Christian books written on the question of why God allows suffering. But you don't need to read a book to know about suffering. You've only got to talk to people here at church. Uh, People who endure all sorts of chronic medical conditions and discomforts and frustrations and heartbreaking emotional suffering. Uh, We hear these stories and we, we groan, we weep with people. Why does the world have to be this way? And it's not just personal. You've just got to read the newspapers. There are endless wars and natural disasters that kill thousands. Uh, Let's not forget the nearly 2.9 million people who've died from coronavirus in the last year. Uh, Why can't life just be a little easier, a little less painful? What on earth is God doing? Now, these are the questions that this section of Romans 8 is answering. So if they're your questions... Uh, Let me encourage you to listen up for the next 20 minutes or so. Let's recap where we've been. As we've worked through Romans, we've followed God's plan to transform his world. Uh, How he's taken self-centred rebels, he's taken a world that's gone badly wrong, and he's, he's acted in history to put things right. He sent his son. His son died. He's given us his spirit. And now we're living in a whole new age. An age with transformed hearts and minds. An age where we walk in a relationship with God the way he designed it to be. But I'm wondering if Paul comes to that section, uh, Romans 8 verse 17, and he's described how wonderful the new age of the Spirit is. And he thinks of the obvious objection. If we're living in such a wonderful age, why are we still groaning? Why are we suffering if we've got all of these wonderful gifts? According to Romans 8, according to our experience, that's the reality. We may have the down payment of God's spirit, but we still groan. Verse 22 says that. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, If you've ever been in a labour ward, you'll know what it's like. Some of us have. I've been there four times. Uh, And not just in our room, but up and down the corridor, you can hear the groans, the screams, the blood-curdling shrieks. And that's just from the dads. But that's what the whole world is like, says Paul. It's like a big labour ward with pain and groaning, longing for the end. Verse 20 describes it as the world is subjected to frustration. Frustration is what happens when things don't turn out the way they're designed, the way you intend them. It's, uh, It's work that doesn't satisfy. It's relationships that fail. It's plans that don't work. It's promises that are broken. Verse 21 says that creation is in bondage to decay. It's not just frustrating. The world is decaying. It's it's winding down. You see it everywhere. Uh, Our bodies that wear out and break down. Genes that mutate. 
houses that get eaten by termites, cars that get destroyed by rust, our environment that's being gradually destroyed with drought, species extinction, floods, bushfires, earthquakes, tsunamis. Then in the human world, we've got wars and genocide and terrorism and murder. Our world seems to be on this long, relentless, slippery slope to crumbling decomposition, bondage to decay. It was happening in Paul's time and it's certainly happening now. And we Christians aren't exempt from this either. Look at verse 23. Not only so, not only is creation doing that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans, and we groan, firstly because we're part of creation. We're saved, but that doesn't make us exempt from the suffering and the groaning. But notice in verse 26, we read that not just creation and not just us, but God's spirit groans as well, which I think is actually comforting. Why groan? Well, I think because we're groaning. Uh, When you're in pain, when you're desperate, when you don't know what to pray or what direction to turn in, when your problems seem so complicated and you don't know where to begin, God promises that his spirit will pray on your behalf. And he doesn't even need to use words. Uh, Verse 27 says, Because your Father who is in heaven knows the mind of his spirit who is in you. Now that just leads us down a whole other question about how the Trinity is at work, but it's comforting, isn't it, to know that God's spirit in you speaks to God the Father in heaven about what you're feeling, groans without words. Well, we groan, the spirit groans, uh, and in the midst of a groaning world. It's a pretty grim picture. And yet for many people, this section is their favourite part of the whole Bible. Why is that? Well, because it puts all of that groaning into perspective. It shows us the bigger picture. For each of our kids when they were born, at some point during the labour, Karen said, never again. I'm not doing it. It's not worth it. And yet every time, within a few moments of the birth, As we looked at this brand new life, we said, yes, it was worth it. It was worth the pain. It was worth the groaning. It's the perspective that comes from knowing that there's something good at the end of the pain, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard to imagine when you're in the midst of it, but the midwives will tell you, they'll say it's positive pain. This is pain with a purpose. You're doing this for a reason, and they're actually right. That's the perspective that you need to hear. And that's what Paul is doing in this section of the Bible. At some point, in the midst of the groaning we're going through, we're going to be able to look back on that pain and say it was worth it. It was worth going through that for what we now have. Jump back up to verse 18. Paul says the pain we're experiencing at the moment is nothing compared to the good things that are coming. It's the verse Elise highlighted at the beginning. Uh, Verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
he's not saying they're nothing, but he's saying compared to what you will have, they're like a minus 10. They're moderately bad, but your future glory, that's going to be plus 100. Minus 10 compared to plus 100. It's not worth comparing. Uh, What's that glory to be revealed in us? Well, a bit further down in verse 23, he describes it uh, as we groan inwardly, as we await, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's speaking about our resurrection bodies, part of the new creation. Uh, Bodies that won't get cancer or heart attacks or brain aneurysms, that won't suffer from arthritis or mental illness or melanoma. But not just physical. It'll be bodies that don't struggle to follow God anymore. Bodies that don't sin. Bodies without the constant battle to do and think and say what pleases God. The days are coming when we can put behind the birth pains, when the labour will be over and will be revealed for what we truly are, which is God's children, uh, with bodies intended the way that God meant them to be. Life at the moment, it's no bed of roses, uh, even for Christians, uh, and perhaps even especially for Christians, but Paul says one day it will be. Life will be a bed of roses. That's the perspective these verses give us. But perhaps you want to say, and I guess it's a question that people have been asking uh, for thousands of years, it's all very well to have that perspective, but why do we have to have the labour now? Why, why can't we just skip the labour and go straight to the, the new bodies, the, to the delivery? Why do we have to go through the pain to get to the gain? Why not have a, a spiritual caesarean section and, and just sort of skip the labour? <laughs> Well, this passage gives us a number of reasons. Firstly, because it's God's will, which might be another question that you have, but look at what what verse 20 says. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. All that we're going through is part of God's plan. That may not sound like much of a reason (laughs) for why we have to go through it, but consider the alternative that all of the suffering we're in the midst of, it's not God's will. That the world is out of control and chaotic. That there is no plan. There is no God who's in control. Uh, You're suffering, the world's suffering. Well, it's just bad luck. To me, that situation's hopeless. I'd much rather have a God who is in control of what's going on, even if I don't understand it. God's plan is that there's purpose in our present groaning. His plan in the midst of that groaning is that we would learn to look forward, that we would learn to hope for what's coming. Because that's what the Christian life is about. It's a forward-looking life. It's a life of faith. It's about hoping for what we don't have yet. It's about promise and trusting the promise. That's what it says in verse 24. For in this hope, this hope of redemption of bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
That's God's plan. The, the true Christian life is the one that's coming. We, we get a taste of it now, but we have to wait. We have to wait for the rest. If it wasn't for the groaning, there'd be no reason to hope. We'd be satisfied. We'd have everything, which is not God's way. It's not the Christian way. So if you look at your life and you see that you've suffered, you're banged up a bit, there's a few chips in your paintwork, some scratches, hang in there. Those, that suffering that you're going through, it's not a sign of a lack of your faith. It's actually a sign of maturity. It's a sign that God's doing something in you. Those knocks and the chips and the clunks, keep your eyes fixed in hope on the ultimate job God is doing on you, the ultimate repair job. The battle scars in the present are God's tools that will increase your hope. If it wasn't for those knocks, then we wouldn't be looking to God. We'd already have everything. We wouldn't need him. We wouldn't need a new creation. God wants us to be hoping and looking to him in humility and expectation. Now that hope is not just for the future. You see, hope benefits us today. Hope looks like patience and contentment and faith and strength. We know that God's got it worked out, even as we endure the present groaning. Hope, expressed today, looks like what Paul says in verse 28. Uh, Trusting a God who has a plan and a purpose. Uh, Listen to these familiar words, verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. From the beginning of time, God has everything mapped out all the way to the end. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. He's not just a a fortune teller. He's in control of what's happening. And your groaning fits right into the middle of God's plans. If you're a Christian, these verses say that God foreknew you and predestined you. He set his plans in place for you. And then he actively called you. He engineered people and circumstances. He softened your heart and opened your eyes and led you to himself. And then he justified you. He put you right with himself. And then in his perfect timing, he'll glorify you. But in the middle of that train, in that middle of that procession of events, today, tomorrow and next week, he's actually predestined you to be changed, to be conformed into the likeness of his son. That's what you're here for. That's the purpose of your life. Your good, your ultimate good, is not your comfort. It's not your health. It's not your success or your rest or your enjoyment. Your ultimate good is not that you'll live in a nice house, have a loving family and get a good job. You may get those things, 
But God's ultimate good for you, his destiny, is that you will be conformed to the likeness of his son. That you will each day grow to be looking more like Jesus. That's the ultimate good that God is working all things for. Conform to the likeness of Jesus in obedience, in godliness, in servant-hearted love for others, in humility, in patience, in dependence on him, in confident, quiet hope. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And in God's wisdom, the way he's going to do that, the way he's going to work on you, is through delaying glory, through groaning, through testing and discipline and trials, through refining fire, through struggles and tears. Because when the path is rough and steep and there are, there's danger on either side, when we are slipping and stumbling, that's when we reach out to hold on to him. When we walk with him rather than thinking we don't need him. It's what God wants all along for us to walk with him through the day, through the groaning and the suffering. How can Paul be so confident though? How can you and I be sure that all of this future is not just wishful thinking? Because wishful thinking is sort of what the word hope means in English, isn't it? It's got this idea, I hope I get a new phone for my birthday. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Is that what Paul means when he talks about hope? That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is the sure certainty of something that's coming. So how can Paul be sure of the future? How can he be sure that God's promises will come true? The answer is because of what he's already done. We can be sure of the future because of the past. Jump down to verse 31 and and notice the, the logic of the timing. What then shall we say in response to this? A, a God who has planned to, to glorify us. What does all this mean? How do we respond to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? What have we got to fear if this sort of God is on our side? And look at the, the logic. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all of these things? How can we be sure about the future? Because of what God's done in the past in Jesus. The cross is the sign that God has already given us the greatest gift. So we can be confident that he will bring us the rest, all those things he's promised, and bring us into the new creation. Verse 33, the same logic continues. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. How can I be sure that God won't drag some sort of future, some past sin out in the future? Well, because of what God's done in the past. Christ Jesus who died, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Jesus died in the past and he's standing there right now pleading on the basis of his cross work 
That one is mine. Uh, Look on him favourably. Don't forget him. Don't forget her. That one is mine. The cross, the resurrection, they're proof that all of that is true. Uh, then uh, Then that means it doesn't matter what happens to me from this point on. If God is for me in the cross and Jesus pleading for me, then I have nothing to fear in this life or in the future. Look at verse 35, wonderful verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, all of these things that we groan about, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever happens, whatever God brings our way, even death, it can't separate you from his love. It's not saying we will never die. It's not saying we will never suffer. It's not saying bad things won't happen. But those things won't separate us. Whatever tries to conquer us, Paul says we will over-conquer. We will hyper-conquer. It's a weird expression, isn't it? It's like um, over-exaggerate to me, isn't it? Like It's unneeded, unnecessary. What's more than conquering? You either conquer or you're conquered. What does it mean to over-conquer? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm reading too much into the word. But what if it means that you don't conquer, but you do better than conquering? You do something other than conquering. You remain despite being conquered. What if that's what he means? That you are conquered on one level, but you remain. What makes me think this way is the way the book of Revelation talks about enduring. The book of Revelation was written to a group of churches suffering Roman persecution. Uh, The author John introduces himself in this way in chapter 1 verse 9 of Revelation. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. That's the situation that he and his readers are in. And then he has a message from Jesus for his suffering brothers. Chapter 2 verse 10. Jesus says to them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. These people overcome while they die. Death may conquer, illness may conquer, or divorce or suffering, but to be more than a conqueror is to to survive, to, to overcome, to remain faithful, to persevere, to make it through that 
suffering and that groaning with our eyes fixed on Jesus, hoping for the new creation, certain of it because of what God's already done in Jesus. That's what it means to more than conquer. Let me give you an example. It's taken from the book Killing Fields, Living Fields, about the Cambodian Christians during the Pol Pot regime in the 1970s. Uh, More than 90% of uh, Cambodian Christians were killed during that uh, slaughter. Uh, The book Killing Fields, Living Fields tells the story of Hain, a uh, Christian teacher who lived in a small village on the edge of a jungle. He and his family were arrested by uh, soldiers. They were permitted to spend their last night together praying and comforting one another. The next morning they dug their own grave and were granted a moment to prepare for their death. They knelt down, they prayed, they encouraged the soldiers about to execute them to repent and believe in Jesus. But then Haim's young son lost his courage and he ran off into the jungle in an escape attempt. Haim convinced the soldiers not to go after him and instead he called out to his son, What comparison, my son, to steal a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, alone, compared to joining your family here? Momentarily, around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. That was his argument. After a few minutes, the son returned, came out of the jungle, walked past the soldiers, dried his eyes, knelt down next to his family beside the grave and together they met their saviour. Were they defeated? Well, Paul would say they hyper-conquered. They were more than conquerors. Uh, They trusted that God was working all things for good. Uh, That is considering their present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. It's hoping for the new creation that comes after the birth pains. That's a family who are convinced that neither death or life or angels or demons or the present or the future will be able to separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may we be like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would help us to see our present sufferings with this perspective as not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. Help us to recognise our groanings and our sufferings as your panel beating on us, uh, making us in the image of Jesus. Uh, We especially pray for those who are suffering at the moment that you will strengthen and give them hope and courage and faith Uh, Help us to be a church that looks after one another like this and points each other uh, to your promises and to your goodness to us in Jesus. Amen.